you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, why so many studio executives are reluctant to greenlight movies that aren't sequels, spinoffs, or remakes. Plus, the new film, Till, centers on one of America's most notorious lynchings, the killing of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955. The film's director, Chinoya Chuku, explains her decision not to depict any physical violence on screen. I wanted to celebrate and embrace the love and community and joy and power that also exists in the lives of Black people alongside the inherent pain and sadness that can come along with being a Black person in this world. But first, here's my retake for this week. Most people can find some measure of happiness through personal accomplishment. It's not essential that other people have to fail, too. Nikki Fink wasn't most people. The longtime entertainment reporter who died Sunday at age 68 certainly succeeded well enough in her endeavors. Her often vitriolic show business website, Deadline Hollywood, became an essential industry news destination in the early 2000s before Fink sold the property to publisher and car racing scion Jay Penske for more than $10 million in 2009. Many of Fink's obituaries chronicled her reporting tactics, which would never be taught in any journalism school. She broke stories less because she was a good reporter than because she was a bully. If sources didn't give her what she wanted, when she wanted, Fink terrorized them privately and disparaged them publicly. She'd scream, have lawyers draft threatening letters, and promise retribution to anyone who treated a competing publication better than deadline. She'd try to destroy lives. Matt Bellany, the former editor of The Hollywood Reporter, wrote on his entertainment website, Puck, but none of that was enough. Fink constitutionally was almost wholly unable to acknowledge any other journalist's work. What a meaningless waste of a tree, she wrote of one of my stories, which was hardly the only put-down she aimed my way. At the very same time, Fink would implausibly consider me a friend and once asked me to finish her long-delayed book. One of Fink's more toxic qualities was the misanthropy she reserved for her peers. Their struggles, losing a job, a news organization setbacks, never begat professional commiseration. Instead, they were cause for celebration. I don't find any joy in Fink's death, but simply because she's no longer alive doesn't mean the enmity she modeled dies with her. I'd like to think that Fink's ends justify the means behavior would no longer be tolerated, I'm less confident, though, that she was an outlier in taking pleasure from other people's misfortunes. When I was at the movies recently watching The Woman King, I saw a preview for the movie Till about the killing of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955. 
Emmett's mother, Mamie Till's decision to have an open casket and allow the photos of his disfigured body to be published in Jet magazine sparked an international outcry over the brutal reality of racism in America. Directed and co-written by Chinoya Chuku, Till focuses on Mamie's journey and, notably, deliberately does not include a depiction of Emmett's killing in the film. What also stood out to me, the preview I saw included a clip from Alana Mayo, the president of Orion Pictures, who greenlit the film. She's one of only two black women heading a major film studio today. Orion exists to give a platform to the myriad of filmmakers like Chinoya that have something to contribute to the cinematic canon of American film. And I'm really, really committed to making movies, not just by us, but for us. I got the chance to talk with Alana Mayo and Chinoya Chuku about Till Myself recently. Here's our conversation. I was talking to Gina Prince-Bythewood the other day. Her movie, The Woman King, was also greenlit by the only other black woman running a studio right now, and that's at TriStar. So, Alana, I want to ask you a little bit about your job and the opportunity that you see that you have, because it is not a position that has been filled by people other than white men for a very long time. Yeah, I am... Beyond the identity piece of it, which, you know, I think it's kind of really profound for people to hear that, that there hasn't been a Black woman running a major motion picture studio until myself and Nicole Brown, who's at TriStar and uh, Greenlit, the incredible Woman King. But beyond that, even, I think for me, the focus has always been that there are just films and stories and, and storytellers that I feel like have always sat on the outskirts of Hollywood mainstream production. And so as an executive who always has been interested in a lot of those films and stories and storytellers, for me, I always felt that if and when I was in the position to say yes and to green light films, that would be my area of interest, not because of even any particular sense of altruism, but just to me as as the number one exporter of this incredible creative product of film, it seems kind of unwise and and strange and like our own missed opportunity to not expand the purview of the kinds of films that we're interested in and the kinds of filmmakers that are incredibly talented, incredibly capable and ready to contribute to this cultural export. And so when I took this job, it was really naturally aligned with the desired mandate of this new Orion to do that. And lo and behold, you know, weeks into the job, I was introduced to Chinoya, whose whose work I'd been a fan of for a long time and who was there with one of those kinds of incredible stories that Hollywood actually had been ignoring. Chinoya, I want to play another clip from that same featurette. And this is where you're talking about your approach to how you are and I guess specifically, are not going to depict violence in this film. There will be no physical violence against Black people on screen because I'm not interested in relishing in that kind of physical trauma. We're going to begin and end in a place of joy. That seems incredibly important to you personally, and it's certainly important to this film. The story I've always wanted to tell was that of Mamie's journey and her journey in her evolution and expanding activist consciousness and her journey and fighting for justice for her son. And I wanted to, I've always wanted to tell this story through her point of view. And so narratively, it didn't make sense 
to me to it to it did it, it was unnecessary to show the physical physical violence inflicted upon Emmett. But also it wasn't like I said in the clip, I I I didn't it, it was a way of me showing care. I didn't want to try, care for myself, care for audiences, care for cast and crew. I didn't want to put myself through that. I didn't want to put audiences through that. And that wasn't essential to the story. I wanted this film to also be a love story between a mother and her child. You know, I wanted to celebrate and embrace the love and community and joy and power that also exists in the lives of Black people alongside the inherent pain and sadness that can come along with being a Black person in this world. And that was something that I shared with Alana from the beginning and something that Alana immediately got, like, stop, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Alana, but that was also what she wanted, you know, and was excited about too, and was like, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. So I, I, it just everybody was on board and everybody knew that that was the choice. That was a, 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 a strong choice that needed to be made from the very beginning. I want to ask you a little bit more about casting your lead role because Emmett Till's mother has suffered an unspeakable tragedy and she is not born to be an activist. She is a mother. She is a, she is a, she works. She is her own self and she is thrust into this horrible, horrible situation. And so you have to cast an actor who can play both that devastation and that inner strength that leads her to do what she eventually does, which is become a civil rights pioneer. So in casting this part, what were the attributes that you needed and how hard was it to find Danielle? Well, months into our search for our Mamie, Danielle Deadweiler sent in an audition tape and blew me away. And when I cast actors, particularly actors in a leading role, one of the things that I look at is, can they communicate a story with their eye? Can they bring out the emotional subtext and the pauses and the silences? Can they hold and command a frame? And Danielle checked all of those boxes times 10. And so that in that audition tape, she encapsulated all of that. And then um, we called her back in for a, uh, and did a director session with using the scene where Mamie is looking at Emmett's body for the first time. Mm. So there are no words. And so Danielle and I had extensive conversations about the emotional arc of that scene and really unpacking all of the beats. Where does Mamie begin emotionally and psychologically at the beginning of that scene? And then where does she end up? How does she get to that place where she's ready to make that decision, that moment of decision? What are the beats all the way leading into that? And the way that she was able to dive into that and we were able to work together on that, it showed me, okay, this is our Mamie. This is a movie that is coming out at a particularly fraught time in terms of U.S. history. There is a intense... I don't even want to say it's a debate because that almost suggests that there's a side to this other side of this argument. But there are people who believe that the teaching of American history should not focus on the things that this country has done horribly and done horribly wrong in its past. Not that a movie can fill that void, but this film is coming out at a time when stories like Emmett Till are under threat about being taught in schools. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it can help challenge, it can help inform, it can, I mean, there's, even for people who think that they know the story, there's still so much to be learned um, from watching this film. And, and, and but I, I, I think it's a challenge to 
what you're saying that there's this act of passing or states are actively trying to pass legislation to rewrite the history uh, in which this country was founded on. And so I, I, I think that this film can help challenge that, but it doesn't take just one film, as you said, like it's a, it's a collective effort. It also includes doing the work on the ground and hopefully this film can inspire people to think of ways that they can be change agents, big or small. Alana, I want to ask you about something that happened probably as you're in post-production, and that is the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which happens in March of this year, and it amends the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels like, you know, that Emmett Till is still with us in terms of what his life has meant to civil rights and what it has meant to this new anti-lynching act, it feels like that kind of makes, you know, what you were pursuing in this movie validated in a way, not that it needed that kind of validation, but it feels like it's the, it's the kind of, um, coincidental timing that I guess isn't necessarily coincidental. So what does that bill's passage mean to you and the value of this movie and Emmett Till's story? Well, it it is affirming. I think it's important to note that the people involved in this film, you know, both from the filmmaking standpoint, Chinoya and the other producers, um, but also members of Emmett Till and Mamie Till's family and the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation um, have all been collaborating to try to get this film made for many, many years. And um, I think both because to me, Mamie Till deserves to be, you know, celebrated and we should give her a platform or we should give a platform to telling people about how she contributed to the betterment of so many people, all of us alive today's lives, but also because I think, you know, her, you know, clearly stated um, mission was not allowing for the story of what happened to her son to be something that went unknown and unnoticed and keeping his legacy and memory alive as a person, but also, you know, really fighting to try to make sure that this would not happen again. Um, So for me making, you know, being a part of making this film is in some ways, well, in many ways a privilege, but it's a privilege to be a part of a culmination of one part of that fight um, to get this story told on on a massive global scale. The movie will be released everywhere internationally. And also, I think, you know, the timing of the passing of um, the anti-lynching act and also a lot of things that have happened in terms of the the push to continue to bring justice uh, to Emmett, inclusive of, you know, holding all of the people who were responsible for his kidnapping and murder, including Carolyn Bryant, responsible. I think a lot of those things that have happened around the making of this film or during the making of this film, you know, you could say are coincidental or even go so far as to say are divine, but I think it's really more than anything, it's representative of the efforts of a lot of people who have been fighting for so long to make sure that justice is served to some extent and also trying to make sure that they're protecting the interests of people, you know, moving forward. Chinoye, I want to ask you about a line of dialogue that to me sums up the movie, and it's just a couple of words. It's the first viewing of the body, and there's a woman who doesn't want to look at Emmett Till's face, which is horribly disfigured, and and she says, I can't, and Mamie says, we have to. 
And she's not talking about the two of them, is she? Yeah, I mean, part of this film is about witnessing. Mamie wanted the world to bear witness to what happened to her son. We have to see. And, you know, going back to your comment about this suppression of history in this country in the schools, you know, trying to prevent us from looking and seeing and knowing what this country is and what this country is founded on so we can build a better future and better possibilities for what this and for what this country could be. That's part of the film. We have to look, have to look. Amen to that. I want to thank You're you here. both for your time. Great conversation. Best of luck with the film. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week, we started off by talking about the Middleburg Film Festival, which I'm headed to this weekend. Tell me about the festival and what you're looking forward to seeing. Uh, I love this festival because it is a showcase for movies that, uh, you know, are really well made. Uh, Tar is going to play there. Uh, White Noise is going to play there. Some documentaries. Uh, and it's also this lovely uh, property that Sheila Johnson, who co-founded BET, uh, built. It's just a great getaway with a lot of great movies. Well, I guess it's fair to say, John, that uh, Black Adam, the big superhero movie starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, will not be playing at the Middleburg Festival. Why not? Well, uh, it won't be. And the reason is that film festivals generally, and there's some exceptions, Toronto makes some exceptions, the Cannes Film Festival makes some exceptions. It's not really a place for big studio blockbusters, uh, A, because they may not be that good in terms of execution, but B, and I think more important, they're not the kind of movies that really need attention. What a film festival can do is focus attention on an upcoming movie that isn't you know, like a, any other Marvel or Star Wars movie. It's well-made. It may not have a lot of easy marketing hooks, but it's a movie that needs to be seen. Like at Middleburg, there's going to be a screening of a German uh, update of the Stephen Crane novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. James Gray's Armageddon Time is going to play there. There's a new adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover. All really good movies. I've seen them. Uh, and yet, you know, they're not you know, star vehicles, they're not going to get the tens of millions of dollars of advertising that Black Adam is going to get. So, yes, it is important that these films get screened at festivals because they need the word of mouth to benefit them. Well, speaking of star vehicles, the latest film from David O. Russell called Amsterdam opened last weekend. And um, I guess to be kind, uh, I would say that it was a disaster. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what does it mean, John, when a film like that bombs? Well, first of all, let's talk about the cast. Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Rami Malek, Robert De Niro, Anya Taylor-Joy, Taylor Swift, Michael Shannon. I could go on and on and on. 
David O. Russell is one of my favorite filmmakers, and he has, you know, a reputation. He is not a uh, easygoing guy. He made American Hustle, Silver Linings Playbook, Flirting with Disaster. This is a movie that opened about half the box office business it was expected to. There are stories that it could lose about seventy to eighty million dollars for the for uh, Walt Disney Company, and it is not, you know, a good movie. It did not get great reviews, but. Unfortunately, when movies like this fail, studios look at them and say, why are we even in the business of making them? And that, to me, is a huge problem, because if they're only going to focus all of their attention on franchise, superhero, comic book movies, you know, David O. Russell has made a lot of good movies. If he makes one bad one, that doesn't mean it's, he should never direct again. It just means this movie didn't work. And unfortunately, it's not just about David O. Russell. It's about why should we make a adult drama that's, you know, that is aiming for a sophisticated audience because if they don't show up, why why should we bother? And I think that's the bigger, bigger problem. Uh, certainly no one, I would hope, tries to make a critical and commercial bomb. But is it hard for a studio to say yes to a movie that is not a sequel, a spinoff, a remake, or a, a prequel like so much of what Hollywood churns out these days? Yes. <laughs> I'm going uh, to talk a little bit about Tar, which is an upcoming movie from Focus Features. It stars Kate Blanchett as a troubled uh, conductor of a classical music uh, orchestra. Todd Field is the writer and director, and he talked to me earlier this week about making this movie and about taking it to Focus Features. Here's what he said about showing them the script. When I turned the script and I said to the studio, um, you don't want to make this. And they said, no, 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 we want to make it. I said, no, you understand this is, this is potentially really dangerous stuff. And they said, yeah, but we want to make it. And I said, okay. Were you relieved that they said yes or a little bit terrified that they said yes? <laughs> no, I, I was really terrified. You probably heard Kate Blanchett laughing in the background. It's dangerous because the character that Kate Blanchett plays is not what you would call likable. She's incredibly talented, very headstrong, but she also manipulates people. There are affairs, there are power imbalances. She is not sensitive to people of color's opinions about classical music. And for Kate herself, uh, you know, playing such a controversial character for for her was also a big leap. Here's what she had to say about playing Lydia Tarr. Any time that I've ever approached anything that has shifted me into a new gear as an actor, it has been deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And there has been, you know, a lot of raised voices and arguments. Respectful, often, some not so respectful. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's a, the film doesn't answer that question, but it is, does ask what is permissible when you're searching for trying to make something truly great. I'm not going to say much more about this film. It is a fantastic movie, and Kate is right. It is a complicated character. It doesn't answer all the questions, but that doesn't mean it isn't a great film. And you saw it at Telluride. I did. I did. And it will be playing at Middleburg. And then it will be, it's coming out in limited release this weekend, and it goes into wide national release on October 28th. Appreciate your reporting, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horne. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brabra, with production assistance this week from Tyler Wayne. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom.
Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.